morning, church. It's good to see every one of you here tonight. Today, uh, have a good crowd. Last week we had 336. We finally got over that 300 mark, and uh, we have a good crowd here today. I don't know what the number is, but uh, it's good to see each of you. Uh, if you're visiting with us, you're especially uh, welcome. Uh, we extend to you an invitation to come back at any time. Do you have uh, opportunity to? One of our visitors today is uh, Marion Rowe. Uh, the Rowe's were members here at West Irwin for a number of years. It was good to see Marion. Uh, update on uh, our sick. Uh, Jane Jones was admitted uh, to Mother Frances on Friday. Uh, they're evaluating her situation. She's having some fluid buildup issues and breathing issues, so we need to keep Jane in our prayers. Also, uh, Logan Martinez, uh, the Son of uh, Johnny and Melanie Martinez, uh, Cooper and Mary June's grandson, uh, was released from the hospital this week. So he was having some issues with dehydration and other things. We're glad uh, he was being able to re be released. Uh, Dale Blackstone's going to have surgery on his eye uh, this Wednesday. Uh, we pray that that goes well. Good news from the Blackstones was that Kaisley had an evaluation this week, and uh, she's not going to have to have surgery on her arm that was broken. So glad to hear that. Um, so I mentioned uh, if you're watching online today, we'd like to address that. Uh, if you, the elders feel like that if you need to, to be home that, and watch at home the services and be a part of it, that's fine. But if you can be here, it would be good for, for you to come. It's always good to get together with our brothers and sisters, and uh, it just it helps you and it helps us to see you here. And if you can get out and go other places, you can go shopping and go to the stores and so forth, uh, you'll be safe enough to come to church here. So we encourage you, if you can, to go ahead and make that effort. Uh, I know it's easy to to watch the services at home on the couch in your pajamas, but uh, we need you here, and so we'd encourage you to come. A lot of times uh, we tend to, to rush through Scripture, and uh, Psalms tells us to be still and know that I'm God. I think uh, what he's saying is just slow down a little bit. We get caught up in fast pace. We get caught up in... In our Bible study, uh, we, we try to read a chapter or a section, or we try to do it in a certain amount of time and, and get through as quickly as we can to say we've done it. But uh, I've got an app on my phone that gives you a verse of the day. This morning I was reading reading that, and I recognized the verse uh, from 2 Timothy uh, 3, 16 and 17. You know, and this is what, what we do a lot of times. We'll recognize a verse and, and we'll read it real fast in our minds and we don't think about it. But let me read it to you in a little different way this morning. Every scripture inspired of God is also profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction which is in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, furnished 
completely unto every good work. It makes a little difference if we slow down and we think about each each word or each phrase in a in a scripture. So let's uh, try not to rush through our Bible reading and uh, see if we can't gain a little more out of it. Let's go to our Heavenly Father in prayer. Father, we come before you this morning with uh, grateful hearts that we can be called your children and that you are our Father, that we can petition you through your Son, Jesus Christ, and lay before you our, our needs and our wants and our thanksgiving. Father, you blessed us so well as a people, as a congregation, and as a nation. We pray that you will continue to, to bless us with those things that we need. We pray, uh, Father, this morning that you will be with our country. We know there's a lot of turmoil and there's a lot of uh, things going on that uh, trouble us. We pray that we will look toward you for, for guidance in these things. Father, we, we pray that those men and women that are, are elected will seek to do the will of the people rather than their own own devices. Father, we pray that you will, will guide them, that you will be uh, the, the reason why they make decisions that they do. Father, we're thankful for West Irwin, for uh, the staff that we have here, for our ministers, for our deacons, for our teachers, for each member pray that uh, you will be with each one of us. Father, we pray that you will be with our eldership, that you will bless uh, the elders with wisdom and with vision, that you will bless us with a, an awareness of false teachers that come in any disguises, that we may protect the flock here at West Irwin. Father, we are mindful of, of those that are are sick and and uh, pray for them. We pray for Jane Jones that you will uh, be with her and that the doctors will be able to evaluate her situation correctly and and uh, improve it. Father, we're thankful that uh, Logan Martinez was uh, released from the hospital this week. We pray that you will continue to be with him in his recovery. Father, also uh, we want to pray for Fred Wingate and for Debbie Jones as they. Uh, continue to to uh, have treatment and continue to recover from from their situation. Father, uh, we ask for your blessings upon our search, uh, the search committee for our youth minister. We, we pray that uh, you will send the right person to us and that they will send them quickly. Father, we're mindful of our youth and are so thankful for them and for the uh, men and women that are, are so involved in, in their activities and, and their spiritual life at this time. We pray that you will bless that group, uh, both the, the leaders and, and the young people. Father, bless them in their upcoming activities, and we pray for their safety and pray for their spiritual growth. Father, we pray that you will be with uh, those that uh, are dealing with uh, serious issues in their life, whether it's uh, physical health issues or 
or uh, whether it's marital issues or financial. Or, Father, we know we all go through stressful times, and we pray that you will help those that are, are involved in these situations at this time. Father, we pray for each of our marriages that we will continue to uh, improve our marriages, that we will build them up, and uh, that we will always look to you and, and love you more than our spouses, and therefore our marriages will continue to improve. Father, we pray that we will always place you first in our lives, that we will be the light in the world that, that needs light in this time of darkness. Father, again, we're thankful for each person that is a member at West Irwin. We pray that uh, we'll all be more involved in the work here and that we will be able to uh, continue to reach out and, and spread the gospel around the world. We pray for our mission work, that they will uh, continue to be dedicated in, in teaching the lost. Father, uh, we're so thankful for the love that you showed toward us by allowing Jesus to die for us. And as we gather around the table today, we pray that we'll remember the great love that, that you have toward us and allowing that to happen and, and remember what it took for Jesus to lay his life down for each one of us when we were so unworthy. Father, again, we love you. We, uh, Pray that you will be with us through this week, that we will uh, be the light in the world and, and those around us. In Jesus' name, amen.
Near the end of Jesus' earthly ministry and in the events leading to his crucifixion, he gathered in an upper room with his disciples to share in a fellowship meal with them as a celebration of the Passover. And as a part of that fellowship meal, Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper and told his disciples to do this in remembrance of of me. And that remembrance that Jesus called his disciples to make was not just to remember the events that were about to take place. It wasn't merely to remember Jesus' death on the cross that the elements represent, but it was also to remember the entire life of Jesus. The gospel writers tell their versions of Jesus' institution of the Lord's Supper in such a way as to connect it with events that have previously been told in the Gospels. It connects it back to previous events in the life and work of Jesus. Specifically, Luke tells his version of the Lord's Supper events to connect it back to other fellowship meals that Jesus engaged in throughout his life. The fellowship meal where Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper reminds us that throughout the ministry of Jesus, He shared table fellowship with tax collectors and sinners, those who were outcasts in first century society. That fellowship meal reminds us of when Jesus told the parable of the great banquet where it wasn't the rich and the powerful that were invited to God's table, but it was the poor and the homeless. And Luke does that in order to remind us that at this table, at the Lord's table, we are all invited. It doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter what you've done, it doesn't matter what you look like, it doesn't matter how society may look at you, at this table we are all invited. We are all invited to take part in the salvation offered to us by Jesus giving up his body and shedding his blood. We are all invited each and every week to gather around this table and to fellowship with one another and to remember that sacrifice that grants us salvation. We are all invited to this table and reminded our unworthiness to be able to gather around this table, but that it's not our unworthiness that brings us here this morning, but it is because of the worthiness of Christ, the worthiness of that salvation that we're able to gather here and to do this each and every week. Let's remember that as we take part in the body and the blood of Christ here this morning. Let's pray for the bread. Lord, we come to you this morning. We look at ourselves, we recognize our unworthiness, but we thank you for doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. We thank you for coming to earth, giving up your body, going through that crucifixion in order to bring us salvation. We pray that we will never forget that sacrifice, that we will never forget what you have done for us. We pray that you will bless us and this bread as we partake of it here this morning. In your son's name we pray.
Let's pray for the cup. Lord, we come to you once again. We want to thank you for the blood that you shed on that cross 2,000 years ago. That perfect, sinless offering. That blood that cleanses our sins. Allows us to be a part of your body. To enter into relationship with you. And that gives us the hope of eternal life in heaven with you. Lord, we can't thank you enough. There aren't words to express how grateful we are for what you have done for us. Again, we pray that you will bless us and that you will bless this cup as we partake of it. In your son's name we pray. You know, God has not only blessed us through the work of his son that we just took time to remember, but he has also blessed all of us in a multitude of other ways. Blessed us in relationships, blessed us with finances, blessed us with all kinds of material things, and we're thankful to him for that. And one of the things that God asks us to do with those things that he has blessed us with is to give back. To remember that everything that we have, that every good and perfect gift comes from God. To give back to God, to give back to the furthering of his church here, to the furthering of his kingdom in this place and throughout the world. And he asks us to do that cheerfully. Again, remembering that these things aren't for us but also cheerfully having the desire to bless others through the way that God has blessed us. And so this morning you're able to give back. There are boxes out in the foyer. You can also give online for the furthering of God's work here. Let's pray. Lord, you have blessed all of us with so many things, so many things that it would take us years to go through everything that you have blessed us with. You've blessed us in so many ways that we are probably not even aware of all of the blessings that you have showered down on us, but for all of those things, Lord, we're grateful. We know that all the things that we have are only because of your love for us, because of your grace and mercy extended to us. And Lord, we pray that we won't hold on so tightly to those things that we have, you have blessed us with, that we forget that they're from you, and that we forget about others who may be less fortunate than ourselves, that we are willing to cheerfully let go of those things, loosen our grip on them to bless others, and to help to spread your kingdom, your light throughout this world, to bring people into your body, to bring people into relationship with you. Again, we're grateful for everything that you have blessed us with. And in your son's name this morning we pray. Amen.
What a wonderful blessing to be together today on this beautiful day, whether you're watching online or here in our auditorium. As uh, Jay said earlier, we are grateful for that. We have a, a great crowd today here as well, and it's always wonderful to get to be with each other and to see uh, each other, especially if it's been a while. Wonderful to see my friend Spencer Shaw and fellow minister here with us today. Wonderful job around the table. I appreciate that so very much, uh, the things that you shared, Spencer. And uh, that whole idea of Jesus coming and setting things on their ear, doing things differently, uh, inviting people that nobody invites to eat, uh, sharing meal, table fellowship with outcasts, um, looking forward to that great banquet and seeing that in what the meal that we shared. I appreciate his thoughts so very much. And in a similar way, we're discussing something today out of Romans 13 in our study of Romans that is different than the way people typically do things. Um, we've looked through Romans chapters one through 11 and uh, established that righteousness of God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. We looked at that great chapter of Romans 12 the last couple of weeks and the call to be living sacrifices, to not let the world squeeze you into its mold, to live according to the way of Christ. And so now we find ourselves in this difficult passage in Romans chapter 13. They say that two subjects you should avoid if you don't want to start a fight are what? Politics and religion. 
Well, today we're talking about both. (laughs) And you're thinking, Bill, why in the world would you do that? Why? Well, it's because inspired scripture does. It's because the apostle Paul does in the book of Romans. And so we will as well. Interestingly enough, as you know, Paul writes the book of Romans to the church that was meeting in several locations in the capital city of the empire in first century Rome. What will he tell them? Well, let's read these verses in Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Let's bow for prayer. Father in heaven, these words, as difficult as they are for us to hear in our 21st century America. We cannot begin to imagine how difficult these words must have been for that church in Rome to hear these words read in church that Sunday, knowing, Father, the difficulty that the civil authorities continually brought upon Christians and upon the church. So, Father, as we consider what these words tell us today. We pray that you would bless us. We pray that you would challenge us. We pray, Father, that you would remind us that the ways of this world are not the ways of the cross and that we would be followers of Jesus first. We pray these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. How is a Christian to live faithfully in a secular nation. And yes, our nation is a secular nation with a secular rule of law. It is not a theocracy, but rather it is a democratic republic. Our nation is certainly flawed as all human institutions are, but America is a great nation. In fact, I personally believe that America is the greatest nation in human history. Yet this great nation of ours has authorities who, in their personal lives and in the way they govern, may at times not only be unsympathetic 
to biblical values and commands, but may even be antagonistic toward the word of God and those who seek to live according to that word. That, however, does not give the Christian permission to act in unchristian ways when it comes to our relationship with the governing authorities, even those with whom we have great disagreements, especially those with whom we have great disagreements. That's what's different about followers of Christ. The world of the New Testament was a secular world. Our world is a secular world. Again, we live in a democracy, a democratic republic, not a theocracy. Our system of government gives us the right to worship as we see fit, and for that we are very grateful. It also gives others the same right, as well as the right to not worship anyone at all. Most of the time, our Christian life and faith do not come in conflict with our government or our laws. And again, for that, we're very, very grateful. That was not as true for the first century church, which makes the teaching of the New Testament even more astounding. And so as we consider this passage and apply it in just a few moments, let's first of all share some biblical background. You have lots of scriptures on your outline and hopefully if you're watching from home online, you'll be able to call those up uh, online as well. But some biblical background, first of all, and I think of what our shepherd Jay Bynum shared at the shepherd's prayer time, reading that passage from 2 Timothy chapter 3 that says, All scripture, every scripture is inspired of God and is profitable for all these things so that the the Christian can be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so when we ask ourselves, how should a Christian citizen in 21st century America act towards the civil government? This is where we go first. We seek to know what the Bible says and what scripture says about how we are to act and interact and yes, react in a secular nation. So some biblical background in in Matthew chapter five is that great passage in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus again turns everything upside down and says, you know, everybody tells you to love your friends and hate your enemies, but I tell you to love your enemies, pray for them. And in that passage, he talks about going the second mile and turning the other cheek. And the setting for that has to do with what the Roman soldiers were allowed to do with the, they were the occupiers. And so a Jewish person in their home would typically have a mile or so uh, measured off from their house because by law, if a Roman soldier asked them to carry their pack for them or whatever, they were by law required to do that, but only for one mile. And so you can just picture this, that a good Jew, after going that mile, as soon as he got to that marker, what would he do with that pack? It's on the ground and I'm turning around and I'm going home. That's how the world sees it. But that's not what Jesus said to do. Jesus said, right when that soldier thinks that you're about to drop his pack and turn around, you tell him, no, I'm, I'm okay, I'm good. I can keep going. I'll be glad to help. That's different, different. 
Matthew chapter 22 is that great uh, interaction between Jesus and the Jewish leaders when they ask him, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And so he calls for a, uh, a coin and he says, whose picture and inscription is that? Well, it's Caesar's. He says, as you know, well, then give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. In John 19, in that very wonderful interaction between Jesus and the Roman pagan governor, Pontius Pilate, Jesus says some incredible things there and shows him a lot of respect in their interaction. But one of the things that Jesus says in John 19 is this, you would have no authority if it weren't given to you from above. Pretty amazing statement. Other passages are listed there, Titus 3, 1 Timothy 2, 1 Peter 2, Philippians 3. I do want us to read a couple of those from 1 Timothy 2, first of all. 1 Timothy 2, beginning at verse 1. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, verse 5, and one mediator between God and mankind, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This, this has now been witnessed to at the proper time. And so the very first thing we do when it comes to civil authorities is we pray for them. We pray for them just as our shepherd Jay Bynum did during our shepherd's prayer, praying for our country, praying for our leaders. It's right to do that. And then in 1 Peter chapter 2 are these words. And the words we read in First and Second Peter are just amazing. He's writing to a different set of people than Paul does to the, in, in Romans. Paul is writing to Christians in the center of the empire, the capital city. And, and yes, they weren't the ones that were in power, but that's where they were. They were in the middle of it all. Well, Peter is writing to Christians who are at the bottom of the social scale. They are immigrants. They have been transplanted from their homeland in Palestine because of uh, persecution. And now they're probably in the northern part of modern-day Turkey and, and are there as refugees. And they had zero power, zero authority, zero respect from the people around them which makes these words even more amazing. Leading into the passage in verse nine of 1 Peter 2, he says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Once you were not a people, verse 10, but now you are the people of God. And verses 11 and 12, he says, I want you to live your lives as resident immigrants. You're you're here, this isn't your homeland, but you're gonna be here a while. And then he says in verse 12, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Very similar to what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter five, when he talks about you being the light of the world and letting others see through your good deeds, the love of Christ. And then he speaks specifically about their interaction with the civil authorities. In 1 Peter 2, beginning at verse 13, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors 
who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will, verse 15, that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. This emperor that was trying to destroy them. And it was going to get worse before it ever got better. And yet, what does Peter say to do? I think a key verse is verse 15 of 1 Peter 2. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. I want to just go and tell them that they're ignorant. (laughs) But that's not God's way. That's man's way. God's way is to just do good. Overcome evil with good, is how Paul put it in Romans 12. And then the passage in Philippians chapter 3 includes that great verse, verse 20, that says our citizenship is in heaven. And we'll talk about that more as we go along today. But our citizenship is in heaven, and that doesn't give us less responsibility in this world. It gives us more. If we're citizens of heaven, then that should affect how we live our lives in this world today. And it should also affect how we treat those who are in positions of authority. This world is not my home, we sing sometimes. Our citizenship is in heaven. Do our actions, are they consistent with that? Or is that just a nice song that we sing every once in a while? In Matthew 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and everything else is going to be okay. It may not turn out like you think it should. It may not turn out like you would like it to turn out, but you seek first God's kingdom, and you entrust everything else to him. We bow down. And we worship you, Lord. We bow down and we crown you the king. Some other scripture passages on your list um, indicate that there were times when individuals were tested and came through. For example, in Exodus chapter 1, it was during the time of Moses and the midwives were instructed by Pharaoh that when an Israelite woman uh, is uh, going through childbirth and they see that that's a boy there to kill him. Well, the midwives disobeyed that and faithfully, rightly so. In Daniel chapter three, Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were cast into the fiery, fiery furnace rather than bow down to an image that was not God. And even in Daniel six, Daniel himself was thrown into a den of lions rather than stop praying, which is what the law required. In Acts chapters four and five, we read about the first instances of persecution against the church with Peter and John being arrested and threatened. Don't say anything more in this name. And them saying, look, we've got it. We, we can't help but speak in this name. We've been commanded. It's, he's done so much for us. And they go back and they have the church meet together and they pray together at the end of Acts 4. And 
And their prayer is this, help your servants to speak boldly. Perhaps they prayed for safety too, and Luke just doesn't uh, uh, include it. But what he does include is whatever else is true, God, help us to put your kingdom first in spite of the risk. And in chapter five, all of the apostles are arrested. And this time they're not just threatened, they're actually beaten and flogged. But before that happens, amazingly enough, while they're in in jail, the Holy Spirit, (laughs) the Holy Spirit releases them and tells them, go back out there and keep preaching. (laughs) Amazing. In Acts chapter seven, we read about Stephen's marvelous sermon and Stephen becomes the first Christian martyr stoned to death for preaching the word of God. In Acts 12, the first apostle, James, the brother of John, is killed by Herod. And in Acts 18, it almost goes without noticing it, but when Luke introduces Aquila and Priscilla to us, he says they're there where Paul was in Corinth and he met them there because they're from Rome, they're from Italy, but Caesar, uh, Claudius Caesar, had thrown all the Jews out of Rome. And that's how... Priscilla and Aquila ended up there in Corinth. Later, they would go back because he addresses them, as we'll see in Romans chapter 16. We are to obey God, even when man's law would force us to disobey God's law. And what a great example Paul the Apostle is of that. Thankfully, this is hardly ever true in our country. When our government makes laws we disagree with, that is not the same as forcing us to disobey God. For example, I believe the Bible teaches that God's will is that marriage should be a lifetime commitment between one man and one woman. The fact that the law in our land allows for same-sex marriage does not force me to go along with that law and be disobedient to God. If, however, the law were to require me in my teaching and preaching and personal life, to personally and for us as a church to approve of that practice, that would force us to choose between obeying man's law and obeying God's law. But again, those issues are few and far between. However, to offer another example, if our governing authorities required us by law to wear a face covering or mask in public places, that would not require us to choose between obeying God's law and obeying man's law. It might violate how you feel the government should act politically. And you might feel that your rights as an American are being violated. But it would not cause you to break any commandment in scripture. And so again, our first question is, what does the Bible say about this? The fact that I may not like a particular law or practice of our government does not by itself give me the right to disobey that law. Nor does it give me the right to be disrespectful and ungodly in my words and actions toward the government. Remember, Romans chapters 12 through 16 are really an expressing of a few examples of what it means to follow Romans 12, 1 and 2, to make our bodies living sacrifices. We'll say it at the end of the lesson, but what Paul does is he puts the sacrifices in living sacrifices. Romans 13 verses one through seven is originally 
written to first century Christians who were suffering horrendously at the hands of the authorities. And yet this is what they were told. At times, Paul used his Roman citizenship and Roman law to his advantage. And we see several examples of that. In Acts 16, in Philippi, when he and Silas had been arrested, they were Roman citizens. And so they demanded that the authorities make that right as they were released. In chapter 22, when he's about to be flogged by a a Roman commander in Jerusalem, he tells him, look, I'm a Roman citizen. Is it legal for you to do this? And even tells him he's been that since birth. In chapters 25 and 26, Paul appeals to Caesar as his right according to the law. Why? Because he knew that he could get a fair trial in the hands of the pagan Romans than he could from his own people, the Jews. In chapter 28, he explains to those in Rome while he's under house arrest all of that that happened. The first century Christians suffered great physical and emotional harm, and there are a lot of scripture passages on your outline that illustrate that. If we're looking to save ourselves from difficulty and and persecution and suffering, that was inconsistent with what happened to those first century Christians. Jesus warned them in Matthew 10 that it would happen. In Luke 9, he says, deny yourself, take up your cross, love the Lord God and your spiritual eternal home more than you love even your own life. In John 16, he says, people will kill you thinking that they're serving God. And in verse 33 of John 16, in this world, you will have trouble but I have overcome the world. Chapter 17, he reminds them that the world is not going to accept you and your word any more than it did me and mine. Why would we think otherwise? Peter, throughout 1 Peter, talks about the persecution of Christians and Paul even lists some of his as he writes to the Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. And we remember Hebrews chapter 12 that says, let's fix our eyes on Jesus. Okay, what about Jesus? He suffered. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. The first century Christians suffered great physical and emotional harm for the faith, at times brought on by the governing authorities. Jesus himself, while he was still in this world, told his disciples, including us, that it would be that way. He also said that our faithful obedience to him would give us life and peace and suffering and injustice in this life. Cannot take that away because he has overcome the world. But let us not forget exactly how he did that. It was not by calling 12,000 legions of angels to come and take him down from the cross in a mighty display of power, as the world understands power. Rather, it was by being willing to suffer unjustly and even be killed rather than disobey the will of the Father. The early Christians overcame the evils of the Roman Empire, but it took about 300 years of unjust, cruel suffering to do that. In other words, it took longer than the United States of America has even existed. And they were suffering the whole time. Again, the passages from Romans 12 remind us our bodies are to be living sacrifices. We are not to react the way the world reacts and let the world squeeze us into its mold. We are to overcome evil with good, not return evil for evil. 
what Paul shares in Romans chapters 12 through 16 are specific examples of what he means by these words, including how we respond to the governing authorities, which is the theme here at the beginning of chapter 13. So let's look quickly at some principles from Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. Number one, everyone must be subject to the governing authorities. Notice it doesn't say everyone must be subject to the governing authorities, unless, of course, you disagree with their politics. Then you don't have to submit. It doesn't say that. In fact, if the whole reason it says that is because the Holy Spirit knew that we would disagree with their policies. If we agree with everything, we don't have to be told to submit. We do that naturally. We love it. It's when we don't that it's the most difficult. The authorities, number two, have been established by God. And this is troublesome. And of course, this short message today is not going to answer every question we have about these. Again, there are times when we must stand against our government because of our unwillingness to disobey God. We must, however, I believe, be very careful in choosing to do that. Number three, the authorities are God's servants. And the word is the same word translated in other contexts, deacons. God uses the civil authorities to maintain order and justice in the land. The role and mission of the government is not the same as the role and mission of the church. And here's a related truth. The United States of America is not the chosen people and it is not the chosen nation. God calls on us to be faithful to the mission he has given the church as his chosen nation and the Christian as his chosen people. Included in that is the call to pray for and be in subjection to all those in authority. Number four, we should submit to avoid punishment. Everyone believes that. (laughs) You don't want to get caught so you don't speed. What's different for the Christian is the next one. Number five, we must submit for conscience sake. And this is what makes us distinctive. Christians are model citizens, not just to escape punishment, but also because of conscience and conviction. In other words, it's the right thing to do. And this part separates us from the non-Christians. Again, the world and the non-Christian would say, if I like the government, I'll submit. But if I don't, all bets are off. But you can't find that anywhere in scripture unless it gets to the point to where to do so would violate the commandments of God. Number six, we should give what is owed. We should be willing to pay taxes, revenue, respect, and honor to those to whom it is due, not just to those that we like. (laughs) And whether or not it is due is not based on whether or not we agree with their politics or whether or not we voted for them in the last election. For whom would it be tougher to submit to authorities? 21st century American Christians? Or first century Roman Christians? Would you switch places and times and cultures with Paul's hearers? Is the message any different for us today than it was for the original recipients of this letter written by the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit? Interestingly enough, the Bible doesn't give us the right to be disrespectful and disobedient to government and governing authorities because of politics. Some said under President Trump that our government was more autocratic than democratic. 
yet he was our president. Some say under President Biden, it is more socialist than democratic, yet he is our president. For the Christian, our call is the same no matter who is in power, whether it's the Republicans or the Democrats or the Romans. We are to submit to and be subject to the authorities. That's what the Bible says. We can write letters, we can make calls, we can support political candidates, parties and causes, we can peacefully protest, we can even run for political office ourselves. I would love to be able to vote for some of you. (laughs) And we should do those things. But we can do those things and still remain faithful to our God by acting honestly, respectfully, and submissively. Acting that way is not based on how the civil authorities act. Acting that way is based on the teaching of Scripture and the example of Jesus Christ. No, you don't get to check your Christianity at the door when it comes to politics. If they were commanded to not give up their Christian values and lifestyle when it came to politics in the first century Roman world, when they were being imprisoned, beaten, and killed because of their faithfulness to Jesus Christ, how can we justify doing that today? The Bible is consistent and writers of scripture like Peter and Paul have the same idea when it comes to the Christian and the civil authorities. Both use the same word, one that's not popular in this country, submit, be subject to. They also agree on how to overcome evil, even when it's in the government, by doing good. We mentioned last week, your mother used to tell you two wrongs don't make a right. And just because the civil authorities may be wrong, in your opinion, doesn't give you the right to be wrong. Though we are free in Christ and are citizens of heaven, we do not use that as an excuse to live disrespectful lives. Rather, we live as servants of God. In fact, the truth that our citizenship is in heaven actually requires more of us, not less. To Canaan's land, I'm on my way. We'll sing in just a moment. Because that's true, it affects how I live my life here and now today, including how I interact with the civil authorities. The standards for the Christian are much, much higher than for others in our American society, and that applies to our words and our conduct, to our emails and our tweets and our Facebook posts, and to the offhand comments we might use to take a stab at our political enemies and get an approving smile from our political allies, but which are disrespectful to the governing authorities to whom we are commanded in Scripture to be subject. We get angry at politicians when they feel like the ends justify the means and use whatever means necessary to accomplish their end goals. Or at least we get upset when the other guys do that. (laughs) When our guys do that, it's okay. How, in light of Romans 12, can we defend our own sinful behavior and actions because of what someone else is doing? Because our country is a democratic republic and not a theocracy or dictatorship, our civil authorities and the laws they pass and enforce will reflect the values and beliefs of the citizens of our great nation. If we don't like the way our country is being governed, there's a great strategy for changing that. It's called the Great Commission. Engage with your neighbor not to change their mind politically, but to share the message of Christ with them. 
as more of our country's citizens name the name of Christ as Lord of their lives, the people they elect and the laws and values they support will be more in line with God's word. That, however, takes time and patience. It takes faithful living ourselves, and most of all, it requires ultimate trust in the one who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And here's a little hint. That one is not Donald Trump, and that one is not Joe Biden. Well, as we begin to close, a few things to say. What does Paul mean when he calls on us to offer our bodies as living sacrifices? I think we're okay with that until we actually have to sacrifice. (laughs) Part of it includes how respectful and submissive we are to the governing authorities, the ones we agree with and the ones we do not agree with. Again, especially those, because that's what makes us different from everyone around us. That's when the example and the lordship of Christ can most clearly be seen. That's when our witness as living sacrifices has the greatest power. The Apostle Paul, as I said earlier, really puts the sacrifice into the call to be living sacrifices. Don't you hate it when he does that? We've already encountered this pesky, annoying trend in chapter 12 when we were commanded to live good lives, to forgive those who wrong us, and to overcome evil with good. And this way of the cross will continue to the end of the book. You see, as difficult as this message is today, this isn't even the one that we find most difficult on a day-to-day basis. We'll get to that one in chapters 14 and 15. Being submissive to the civil authorities certainly is a part of offering our bodies as living sacrifices. And I do realize that no one message can come close to covering this important and timely topic. And likely I've created more questions than I've answered. And I'll be glad to interact with you if you would like. Being submissive to the civil authorities certainly is a way to fulfill that call to be living sacrifices. But now let's summarize this New Testament teaching with these two statements. Christians must be faithful to God and his word. That's what we do first. We are called to be faithful to God and to his word. And so what we've been talking about today is not the Constitution of the United States. What we've been talking about today is the teaching of inspired Scripture. Because that is our ultimate authority. That's the first question. What does the Bible say about how we're to act and how we're to live? Christians must be faithful to God and His Word. And then secondly, Christians must be model citizens. Granted, sometimes these two will be at odds with one another, as we have said, and we will have to make a choice. And when they do, like the first century Christians, we must obey God rather than man. But as we have said, thankfully in our nation at least, that is hardly ever the case. And it's the case far less than what we might try to make ourselves believe, simply because we're trying to rationalize ungodly, sinful behavior. May God deliver us from letting the world squeeze us into its mold. May God use us just as he used the Christians in the days of the Roman Empire to overcome evil with good. 
If you need help and encouragement doing that, come as we stand, sing our song together. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for today. Thank you for giving us another day to come here to worship you together as, as your church. Um, thank you for the lesson that, that we heard today. Uh, and just um, thank you for blessing this church uh, here in 2021. Uh, just continue to, to be with the work that goes on here. Um, and just as we move forward with this year, just uh, help us to always lean on you. Um, thank you for... Uh, just um, always blessing us, help us to go in, uh, into this week um, and just, just be the light for you uh, and just continue to walk with us um, and to always lean on you. Thank you for your son and his sacrifice for us, and um, it's in uh, his name we pray. Amen.